Today's scripture is from Exodus 3, 1 to 15. Now Moses was keeping the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flocks to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmaster. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, and the Hivites and Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians opposed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You may be seated. Thank you. Let me pray for us as we get started. Gracious, faithful, holy God, thank you for revealing yourself to us, and we ask now that your word would do your work by your spirit, with us upstairs and with the kids downstairs. Would we praise you together as one church? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm on the team here, and it's my joy to open up God's Word with you as we continue in our series on the book of Exodus. Last week, uh, we were left off on a bit of a cliffhanger. And so, before we get there, we're going to have a bit of a quick recap of what's happened so far. Chapter 1 enter the character Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who is the evil villain of the story. Pharaoh enslaves and oppresses the Israelites, but the courage of two midwives, Shifra and Pua, saves the Israelite baby boys from being killed. 
chapter 2, enter the character Moses. The courage of three more women, Moses' mother, Moses' sister, and Pharaoh's daughter, who become Moses' adoptive mother, saves Moses from being killed. Now, Moses is an Israelite commoner who grew up as Egyptian royalty, but in a moment of courage, he kills an Egyptian who is beating up an Israelite. In a moment of courage, he chooses to side with the Israelites, his people. And the reader wonders, could this be the turning point in the story for the Israelites? Just as the courage of those women saved countless lives, could this be the moment that Moses' courage saves the Israelites from their suffering and oppression? Could this be the moment? answer is no. As you read last week, instead of welcoming and celebrating Moses, the Israelites reject Moses. And now Pharaoh is out to kill him. Just when everything seemed to be looking up, Moses has a spectacular fall from grace. And so, rejected by everyone, wanted for murder, Moses makes a run for it. Far from being the turning point that we expect, Moses' courage and sacrifice falls flat and the people of Israel remain enslaved and oppressed and crying out for help. But that's not how chapter 2 ends. The last bit of chapter 2 hints that the story isn't quite over yet. It's only episode 2. The season is a long way to go. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Just as it seems like all hope is lost, Chapter 2 ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. And it does that by telling us that God is on the move. We've seen His fingerprints in the story so far, haven't we? Hints that He is working behind the scenes, even though you don't quite see Him. Despite all the oppression and evil plans of Pharaoh, the Israelites miraculously continue to be fruitful and multiply. Against all odds, in a way that no one can understand. Through the the courage of five women, the children are miraculously saved from certain death. And then through a miraculous turn of events, an Israelite baby boy who has been sentenced to death is put in a basket in a river. And not only is he saved, he becomes an Egyptian prince. He couldn't make this up. The point is, even though we don't see God, we see God's fingerprints, don't we, as He's working behind the scenes, and now it's time for Him to enter the story. Chapter 1, enter Pharaoh. Chapter 2, enter Moses. Chapter 3, enter God Himself. God reveals Himself in Exodus for the first time. And as He reveals who He is, we're going to look at at four things God reveals about Himself. Four things... The God who meets us where we are, the God who is holy, the God who sees, hears, and comes down to us, and the God who is, will be, 
and causes to be quite a mouthful, these points, but I did the best that I could. The God who meets us where we are, the God who is holy, the God who sees, hears, and comes down to us, and the God who is, who is, will be, and causes to be. So to our first point, the God who meets us where we are. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 again. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. What is Moses doing? Moses is out doing his work as a shepherd. You might not be able to tell, apart from his strange accent and quirky cultural habits, but he used to be Egyptian royalty, destined for great things. But that was years ago. He had a fall from grace, and such was his fall from grace that he's now working as a shepherd, an occupation that Egyptians looked down on. When, when, when Joseph's family was going to Egypt, Joseph actually told his family, don't tell them you're your shepherds. And Moses is in the wilderness, and the wilderness wasn't just where he was physically, it was actually a good metaphor for where he was in life, in the middle of nowhere. And before I go on, I wonder, maybe some of us can identify with where Moses was at. Something happened in your past. Maybe you made a mistake. Maybe it wasn't your fault at all. But something happened that caused, that seemed to cause the trajectory of your life to change drastically. And maybe you've moved past it. Or maybe for some of us, every now and again, the weight comes back the burden of what happened and, and the thought of what might have been. Take, take heart from Moses' story. Look at the first half of verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. God appears to Moses, and he's going to use Moses for great things. But before we go into that, we need to notice something in verse 2. God appears to Moses exactly where he is. To Moses, it's been years since his fall from grace. And it might have felt like he had missed his chance, like the train had left the station and he was stuck in the wilderness forever. But no, it's in the middle of the wilderness, years later, that God meets Moses exactly where he is. The text doesn't tell us how or why, but everything that had happened to Moses, including his fall from grace, was part of God's plan to do great things through him. The Bible later describes Moses as the most humble man to ever walk the earth. And we know that Moses didn't write that because that would have negated the humble bit. <laughs> but I wonder if part of Moses' humility and depth of character was in part due to the fire of the trials that God allowed him to go through. Even if it was his fault, God used what had happened to prepare Moses for what was to come. Christ City, never think that God is done with you. 
even if it's been years, never think that God has forgotten about you and left you to be stuck in the wilderness forever. Even if it's been years, never think that a mistake has disqualified you from being used by God or being met by God. Because God is in the business of using imperfect people for His perfect purposes. Let me say that again. God is in the business of using imperfect people for His perfect purposes. And you know why? Because there's no other type of person. There are only imperfect people. And we know that God uses imperfect people because God doesn't actually need our help in the first place. John said this last week. God doesn't need us, but He allows us to help Him. But but we need to notice something else here. What is Moses doing when God appears to him? What is Moses doing? Moses is doing his ordinary job as an ordinary shepherd. We saw this with the midwife Shifra and Pua in chapter 1, and we see it again here, and I'm going to point it out again here. Sometimes we think that in order for us to do great things for God, or for us to have a great mountaintop experience with God, we somehow need to do or be something or someone special. We need to go to a special place or to have special training. We need to switch off the lights. But that's not how it is. Moses reminds us that God meets us exactly where we are and exactly as we are. God meets us as we faithfully do the ordinary tasks He has given us in the ordinary place He has placed us. You don't have to change your job to be used by God. Students, you don't have to graduate to be used by God. You don't have to move somewhere else to meet God. God reveals Himself to Moses while Moses is doing his ordinary job in an ordinary place because God meets us where we are and God meets us as we are. So, first point, God meets us where we are and as we are. Second point, God who is holy. Look at verse 2 again. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. What's happening is that God appears to Moses. Verse 2 says, the angel of the Lord, but it's quite clear that the angel of the Lord, in this passage at least, is God himself. And we know this because in this passage, the angel of the Lord is actually used interchangeably with God in the way he's described. And and the angel of the Lord speaks as God himself. So God is the one who appears to Moses, and God speaks to Moses. Let's read what God says, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is a really significant passage. This is the first time that God reveals himself in Exodus. And the first thing that stands out is God's holiness. 
What does it mean for God to be holy? Theologian G.I. Packer describes God's holiness like this. Holy is the Bible word for all that makes God different from us, in particular, His awesome power and purity. Holy is the Bible word for all that makes God different from us, separate from us, in particular, His awesome power and purity. To say that God is holy is to say that God is different from us. To to say that there is a a separation between God and us, between Him who is holy and us who are not holy. That's why God tells Moses, don't come too near, because Moses can't stand God's sheer power and goodness and purity. That's why Moses has to take off his sandals, because God's holy presence makes even the ground on which he stands holy. That's why Moses has to hide his face, because he's afraid to look at a holy God. Today, we often use the word holy like it's a bad thing, don't we? Like, he's too holy for us, or she's no fun because she's holy. We see holiness as a bad thing, and so we, we try to downplay God's holiness, don't we? We might even try to create our own version of God that is not holy, where God is not different from us, where He's not separate from us. He's just like us. But it doesn't work that way. God is not like some pizza that we can customize based on what we like and don't like. Our role is not to customize God based on what we like and don't like. Our role is to understand God for who He is. Now, we can reject God for who He is if we don't like it, if we don't like who He is. That is up to us. But we can't just create another version of God to fit what we think God should be like. We don't do this with anyone else. Why should we do this with God? Kendra, who did the announcement, she's from Abbotsford. And I can't just go up to Kendra and say, I don't think you exist because if you did exist, you wouldn't be from Abbotsford. No, it's ridiculous. You can't do that because you don't do, we don't do that with others. And so we, how can we do that with God? But here's the thing. It's not just about accepting God for being holy. When we rightly understand what it means for God to be holy and separate from us, we don't just accept God for being holy. We would want God to be holy. In fact, we would praise God for His holiness because a world without God who is holy is a world without light and without hope. If God were not holy, if He were not morally pure, we would have no standard for us to to differentiate good from evil. If God were not holy, if God were not morally pure, we would have no standard for us to tell apart good from evil. And such is the pervasive corruption of sin and evil on the world that our only hope of salvation has to come from someone who is not of this world. From someone who is, what's the word, different from us, who is separate from us, who is absolutely good and powerful and pure and completely untainted and uncorrupted by sin. In other words, in the sin and darkness of this world, our only hope of salvation is in a God who is holy, who is separate, 
And therein lies the tension, doesn't it? We want a holy God. Our only hope is in a holy God, but we are terrified of a holy God. That's why Moses hides his face. He was afraid to look at a holy God. And that is why when you ask people on the street what they think God is like, many people customize for themselves a God who is distant, who is beyond us, who is unknowable, who is too separate from us to want to have anything to do with us. They would say, yeah, there might be a God, but if there was, He is too far away. He's got nothing to do with us. We could, never, we could not possibly know who He is. But Christ said, that's not how God's holiness works. That's not who God is. Our God is holy, but He is also the God who sees and hears and comes down to us, which is our third point. God is holy. He is separate from us, but that doesn't mean He's unknowable. That doesn't mean He doesn't want anything to do with us. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. These verses, they emphasize God's interaction with his people. He doesn't just see the affliction of his people, he has surely seen the affliction of his people. Look at all the words that describe God interacting with us. He sees hears, knows, and he comes down to deliver. The theological term to describe what's happening here is that God is imminent. That God is imminent, meaning that God interacts with us. He dwells among us. He, he reveals himself to us in a personal way. But that's not all. The passage doesn't just show us that God interacts with us. It shows us how God interacts with us. Look at verse 8 again. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God interacts with us in such a way that He's always faithful to His promises. And if you've been tracking along with us since the beginning of Exodus, since chapter 1, you would see some words repeated from previous verses, don't we? God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring their descendants, what? Up out of Egypt and to give them a land of their own. And that's exactly what God is talking about here. He's referring to the promise he made to bring them up out of Egypt to a good and broad land of their own. See, God interacts with us, but he interacts in a way where he is always faithful. And not just that, he interacts in a way where he is always gracious. Look at the first half of verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. We saw the same, uh, a similar description in, in, in 2.23, and it's important that we don't miss exactly what is being said here. The cry of the people of Israel has come up to God, but there is no indication that they have been crying out to God. Let me say that again. We see here that the cry of the people of Israel has come up to God, but there's no indication that, that they have been crying out to God. 
It's like if you're walking along the street and you hear a person cry for help. The person is not crying to you. The person's cries have come to you. We need to notice this because the point is this. There is no indication that the Israelites are crying out to God because over many years, it seems like they have forgotten God. That's why a few verses later, Moses has to ask God for his name because the Israelites have forgotten the name of the one true God. And yet, God in his grace hears and acts. God doesn't wait for them to ask him directly. He doesn't wait for them to ask him in exactly the right way. No, he hears them and he acts because he is so gracious. It's a bit like uh, when Sandy Duck volunteered to be in charge of the duck game at our neighborhood party last year. If you know Sandy, you know where this is going. It didn't matter how the kid did in the game. Sandy was just giving out candy all over the place for, for, for playing the game, for being there, for just saying hi. And the point is this. God is not a mean God with His arms crossed and a frown on His face just waiting for us to get things exactly right before He acts. No. God is gracious to hear us and come down to deliver us even when we don't deserve it, even when we don't get things right. God is a God who sees and hears and comes down to us with faithfulness and grace. He did that for the Israelites, and He does that for us. And I, rem- and I wonder who among us needs to be reminded of that this morning. God is not a God who is far off. God is a God who is near, who sees us and hears us and comes down to us even when we don't get things right. When we are weak and fragile and don't even have the words to say, He hears what we meant to say. When we feel inadequate, when we feel unworthy, when we feel horribly unclean, He comes down to us anyway. He doesn't say, go and take a shower. He says, let me give you a hug. Because it's not about who we are, it's about who He is and who He's going to make us to be. Which brings us to our final point. The God who is, will be, and causes to be. Look at verse 13 with me. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Before we go into God's name, we need to notice something that I mentioned earlier. There's an emphasis on the idea of remembering, and Moses has to ask God what his name is because the Israelites had forgotten God's name. He shouldn't have to ask, remind me your name. What do I tell them about who the one true God is? He shouldn't have to 
But he did because the Israelites had lived in a culture where they were surrounded by so many different gods for so long that they had forgotten who was the one true God. The Israelites for so long had lived in a culture where there were so many customized gods that they couldn't tell who was the one true God. That's such an important reminder for us today, isn't it? One commentator put it this way, we are never more than one generation from forgetting who God is. We are never more than one generation from forgetting who God is. Kids' ministry is important, but kids' ministry is not something we outsource, it's something that we all have a sacred responsibility for. We all have a sacred responsibility to make sure that we do not just remember who God is, but the next generation knows who God is. Christ City, may Vancouver never be a place where we have to, where someone asks, remind me who he is again. So back to God's name. God reveals his personal name to be I Am. And just as a side note, in our Bibles, in the Old Testament, every time you see the name the Lord in capital letters, it's referring to the I Am name that God uses here. So for example, in 3 verse 2, when it says, uh, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him, the Lord is referring to the I am name. It's, and the angel of I am appeared to him. Uh, look down at verse 4. You see it again. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, it's when I am saw that he turned aside to see. But here's the thing. The, the, the point here is not that God is just revealing his personal name. He's revealing who he is. God isn't just revealing his personal name. What's happening here is that he's revealing who he is. And God is revealing himself. He says that he is I am because God is revealing himself to be beyond comparison with anything in this world. And he's revealing himself to be the creator and sustainer of everything in this world. Let me say this again. When God is revealing himself here, He's revealing himself to be beyond comparison with anything in this world and also the creator and sustainer of everything in this world. So actually a more accurate way of translating what God's personal name is from the Hebrew is more like, I am, I will be, and I cause to be. Hence the clunky point. <laughs> God is saying that, he, he's saying, I am, I will be, and I cause to be. We have no categories that exist to fully understand who God is. And that's why it's so ridiculous when we try to customize God based on our imagination because God is beyond anything we could ever imagine for ourselves. It's like trying to describe an iPad to someone in the 1500s. There are just no categories for it. And so what has God revealed about Himself to us? We've learned four things today. God meets us where we are. God is holy. God hears, see, uh, sees, hears, and comes down to us. And God is, will be, and causes to be. But even as I read these four things, there's a problem with these four things, isn't there? 
we hinted at the problem earlier, and we sort of like skated over it, we haven't resolved it. There's a tension between some of these attributes of God, isn't there? How can a God who is holy, who is separate from us because of His goodness and power and purity, how can a holy God meet us who are unholy? How can a God who is holy not just see us and hear us, but come down to be with us who are sinful and unworthy? The, the problem Moses faced is the same problem for us. We want to approach God, but we can't come too near. We want to see God's face, but we also want to hide ourselves from God's face. And that's why Jesus had to come. Christ City, God's revelation of Himself as I am points forward to, the, to when Jesus, the Son of God, reveals Himself as I am. Look at John chapter 8, verse 58. John chapter 8, verse 58. Someone is asking Jesus who He is, and Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus isn't just making a, a statement in terms of time. He's making a profound theological statement. We see it again in Luke chapter 22, verse 70. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Just as God came down to bring the Israelites up from slavery and set them apart as His holy people in Exodus, Jesus, the Son of God, came down to earth to bring us up from slavery and set us apart as His holy people. Jesus came down to solve the problem once and for all. How can a holy God be with an unholy people? The answer is the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, He took on all our sin and unholiness on Himself so that by faith in Him, we can be made holy and be with Him. It's so striking because you look at Exodus, when God, um, in verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What is God's response? He said, but I will be with you. Even as we are too terrified to be with God, God's presence is the, is the solution for our fears. God, Jesus has made us holy so that we can be with God, so that we don't have to hide our face with God. When the little children came to Jesus, what did Jesus say? Did Jesus say, don't come too near? No. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Rather than keeping them away at arm's length, Jesus opened his arms and brought them into his embrace, Christ City, and that's what he does with us. The gospel is the good news, the glorious news that Jesus came down to us so that we could be with him. It is the glorious news that Jesus it meets us exactly where we are and he is more wonderful than you could ever imagine. And so to end, we'd like to share a story with you in the video. Evolutionary theory really influenced how I saw myself and other people. 
Evolutionary theory is all about survival of the fittest. Everything is about how well I handle circumstances. So when I would look at other people, and particularly Christians, in needing a God to help them through their life, I saw those people as weak and inferior, and I saw myself as better than them. I've started studying science in university, and one thing I noticed that was happening a lot was uh, these ministry organizations working on evangelizing uh, and sharing the gospel with others, and it was something that really bothered me. So uh, a couple of my friends and I decided to start uh, a skeptics club, and the whole purpose of it was to just try to counteract that evangelism and stop the spread of religion on campus. A couple months after starting this club, I was sitting in physiology class and we were learning about how the heart pumps on a molecular level, especially when it goes into heart failure, what it's doing to keep itself pumping. And I had this epiphany when I was sitting in class, this realization that there's no way that that could have evolved. Uh, it had to be created. It was too perfect. I started getting out into nature a lot and I started realizing just how beautiful things were. Uh, and so I'd say that God started using his creation, furthering that idea that there had to be something that made these things. As I was getting more into exploring nature, I started rock climbing and uh, I went to a rock climbing competition and that's where I met my wife, Jessica. And it's, it's kind of funny because I'd always promised myself I would never date a Christian. Um, uh, but I think it was on like our second date, uh, she told me that she was a Christian. And I was like, that's great. Do you want to be my girlfriend? After a couple months of dating, Jess uh, invited me to come to church with her. And uh, yeah, I still remember my very first experience there. Uh, it was so uncomfortable. <laughs> it was the singing. The singing about this God who loves me and who I'm supposed to love. And um, uh, yeah, it was just so weird. I kept going back to church, um, even despite the awkwardness. And I started having a lot more questions uh, about all of this. And so I started reading the Bible to try and answer some of those questions, uh, to really understand for myself, what is this? One Sunday we were going to church and it was the, 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 the prayer portion of the, the service where you can go down to the front and get prayer. And I just felt this tug it literally felt like me being pulled forward. Uh, I remember I went up uh, to the pastor and was just saying, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't really know what I'm doing here. My girlfriend's been bringing me and uh, I just feel like I need prayer. I don't know what I need prayer for. I just feel like I need prayer. Uh, and he prayed for me. Uh, I just remember trembling and weeping as he was praying for me. Really what happened was God captured my heart uh, is really the best way I can put it. After that prayer time, uh, the pastor wanted to meet with me. And so about a week later, we met up and uh, we spent probably a couple of hours um, sitting in his office, talking, answering my questions, uh, exploring the word. 
Uh, and uh, kind of near the end of our time together, um, I, I just had uh, this burning sensation coming into my heart. And the pastor described that to me as like, he, even for him, he just felt this moment when the spirit came into the room. And he asked me, you know, are you ready to surrender your life to the Lord? And I said, yes, yeah, absolutely. I think something that I've learned uh, really early on was the importance of community for walking as a Christian in this world. It's not about survival of the fittest. It really is about partnering with believers to help all of us achieve the purpose that the Lord has for us in our lives here on earth. Where I find my fulfillment now is knowing that I am completely secure and that that security is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in his absolute never-ending love for me. And because of that, it shifting my entire world to be one of wanting to serve him with everything that I have.